happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 189 on September 2nd, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in beautiful Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? I'm well. Uh, it is an interesting year, but I am thankful for many things, and those that, that includes uh, being thankful to be here. So I am Still, ostensibly the innovation, the uh, technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, but I am teaching six sections of classes this year. So, a couple Spanish introductory fifth grade classes and a couple media literacy and digital literacy fifth and sixth grade classes. So, in uh, some classes, we're you know just kind of staying uh, one day ahead of the kids, but. If you've been teaching any length of time at all, you probably know what that is like. So, but it's going well. <laughs> what are we going to do tonight, Jason? I have lost my my link. So I, I had carefully formed my URL to tweet out to our, our audience of five um, that we're live. But I uh, heard a rumor we're going to talk about some tech news. And I think we're going to talk about some Apple stuff, perhaps, that got moved from last week. I, I moved a couple links up there so yep that's true so for those of you joining us for the first time first welcome but the edtech situation room podcast is a once a week podcast where we go through the week's technology news and try to shoot it through the prism of education because as it turns out a uh, technology pretty critical platform to delivering k through higher ed education across the world um you can get these links at edtech sr slash links as dr fry referred to we almost never get through all of them and the ones that we can't carry over or have lost their timeliness uh, are still interesting articles at the time they're posted. So feel free to go there to check out what's on our minds. And tonight we have several topics. Uh, I would like to start off with a COVID-19 article, which is probably not a real shock. We have Apple News, Android News, Firefox News, Microsoft News, Chrome OS News, and some articles on security and our favorite topic, which of course is miscellaneous. And then we'll end the episode tonight uh, with Geeks of the Week. So let me start off with, I received an interesting email today. Uh, there is an organization in Oregon called OETC, which I, which I is used to be the Oregon Educational Technology Consortium. It now stands for something else, like the Organization for Educational Technology, something, something, something. But OETC is a buying consortium in the Pacific Northwest and Montana, Idaho, um, uh, 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 the other major Pacific Northwest states Utah? are Washington, Oregon, <laughs> and they are. It's going to be a great show tonight, folks. Yeah, yes, we're, we're really on top started. of it. We're Although I'm going to go ahead and guess if uh, if our audience is anything like we are, you're probably at this point, anyways. But um, they released an interesting survey today. Of uh, this was mostly aimed at administrators, IT ta IT staff, CIOs, and teachers across the Northwest and. Um, uh, their headline is that uh, it the, is that uh, the survey revealed vast differences in timelines and attitudes, apprehension, and the biggest concerns they face. Although I would say, in reading the results myself, I found them to be maybe a little more consistent. That you know, 
it's unlikely we're going to have anywhere near a normal school year for the next year. But I thought I would start off with and maybe get our predictions in part, uh, you know, based on what's maybe coming in the near future. Um, but it was mostly Oregon and Washington teachers, CIOs, tech directors, et cetera, that answered the survey. Most were K-12. Um, and it was predominantly, uh, almost half of them were from larger schools as opposed to medium and small size schools. But, um, a couple of things that are, are pretty interesting that the question they asked is that if you had to guess, when do you think your school will have students on premises, whether it's in the hybrid model or, or full opening? Um, of course, many schools did go back in, in some way, shape or form, but the guesses here were fall 2020. So in other words, either now or in the near future, uh, winter 2020, and that was 38% of respondents. 41% of respondents uh, said that winter 2020 would be at 9% said spring 2021, and then 12% said not during the 2020 to 21 school year, or not until the next school year. So Wes, obviously you are uh, in a school that did return back, but do you have any thoughts on you know, six months, 12 months from now, will we see a predominant number of schools be able to go back physically or any thoughts about that? I think it's going to be all over the map as it is today. Um, you know, gosh, we have 30% of the schools that in Oklahoma, the public schools that are back are not having a mask mandate for students. I don't know how sustainable that is, but we're just all over the place. Thankfully, our school has been, you know, I think we've done everything we possibly could uh, in terms of equipment and procedures, mask mandates and, and everything. So, you know, we have such gaps today in terms of funding and resources for schools. Um, you know, we've had just absolute heroic uh, work done by so many in education um, to, you know, bring students devices, to bring families and students food, I mean, to do all kinds of things. But we just don't have a, a uniform or level uh, playing field or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use in terms of education. And so I think this is just going to continue to amplify that. And we're going to have all kinds of all kinds of situations. The good news is, and this is something that we did not know because no one does know uh, how this is all going to play out and happen. I mean, we haven't had a huge spike in cases, uh, even though our numbers have, have been higher, you know, in our state where like we've heard about some colleges where they go back and then immediately they've got, you know, hundreds of kids testing positive. Now I will say we're not like some universities are doing, you know, testing universally everybody. Uh, I've heard about some, you know, universities who've done that for all faculty. They've done that for students. You know, it just, it's all over the place. So I don't, I think it's extremely hard to, um, to, to generalize in terms of what everyone's experiences are going to be. I think there still is an expectation that as the normal flu season ramps up, things are going to get tougher. And so there's a high likelihood that later this fall, uh, schools like ours that have gone back face to face are going to need to, you know, go remote. But I don't, I don't think we can just generalize. I think we're going to need to have lots and lots of support in a lot of different ways for teachers. And it's going to be the long haul to touch on some, you know, disinformation, vaccine related articles we've discussed before. I think that, People, you know, countries and groups are going to be pushing vaccines really rapidly forward. That's 
going and that along with disinformation and and malinformation campaigns is going to cause a lot of folks who might not have already been in an anti-vaxxer group to really question that and so i think we're going to have a lot of difficulty in you know quickly having a vaccine that is effective uh you know applied throughout the country to really you know speed this process i think it's going to be a very long road we're in a marathon and then one other question I want to ask based on the survey, Wes, and, and this is actually leading to a discussion that, that I was hoping to have with you tonight. The when do you think you'll return to normal operations, all students and staff present on all days, no restrictions? And I guess, um, uh, well, my, my assumption would be that there, there's no way that, that all schools go back to normal in the 2021 school year. Um, but do you, do you have any thoughts? I mean, about that as relation to schools in your area, your school in particular? I mean, what is normal, I guess? Um, you yeah. know, we, we have four different modes that students can be in right now from regular face to face to, um, either a short term or a long term, uh, flex learning situation. Um, and then we've, um, you know, it's, and we're, I don't know. I just, I think we're all going to be wearing masks. I think we're all going to have to be accommodating different students. We don't, we're not, uh, having students just, you know, tune in live, um, across the board to classes. There's a few teachers I think that are experiencing that, but I think, um, you know, it's just, it seems so crazy that nobody can say with certainty, you know, what is going to be happening, um, tomorrow or what's going to be happening in in a few weeks. So, um, it, I think like we've said before, it seems like until there is a vaccine that is, is very effective and has been administered broadly, um, you know, we're, we're not going to have folks going back to a quote normal, but what, what is a normal? I just, I, I don't think it is right. going to, um, stabilize in, in the short term. I will say that, that, you know, in the case of like Oklahoma city schools, so we've got, um, I think, you know, somewhere, somewhere upwards of 50,000 students and, and, uh, just, you know, the large that Oklahoma city public and Tulsa are our largest two districts in our state. We have over 500 districts, uh, most of whom have less than 200 students. So we're very rural, but in terms of those large districts, I mean, Oklahoma City has pulled off one to one, getting a device for for every student. Um, they opened up remote this last week. Um, one thing that I'll mention, I'm not blogging about this, but we've got some friends who have gone with the remote option for uh, I'll, I'll just say one of our suburban districts that um, has has been I won't mention the name of the company, but it's an off the shelf basically computer-aided instruction. Here, here, here it is in a can. Watch these videos, do this work. And um, we, we know some people that are extremely frustrated and not happy with that kind of situation. And so, you know, even with the best laid plans, I think schools are going to have to be agile and, and take a look at what they're doing. And um, I think that the school districts that are providing teachers who are specifically um, – you know, catering to and teaching to those at home students are going to have the, the most success. The teachers and the school districts who are trying to, you know, have teachers sort of do it all in terms of face to face instruction and with students who are, you know, at home. Um, it's, it's just really, really challenging. So hard to generalize. Definitely a good thing to touch base and kind of see what, what is happening because it's just, it's a, it's a very dynamic thing. But I will say, 
I've been very pleased, of course, that <laughs> we've been able to to stay. I think this is our third. This is our third full week of uh, back to back, face to face. Uh, with students they came back on the 14th of, of of August we had a two-week window where students who were thinking maybe they were going to want to stay home at what we're calling flex learning could could come home and try or they could try the flex and then they can switch and then we asked them to commit and so I know in my case um, out of all of my students I, I only had a, a small handful um, that were doing that and uh, in in one case they've decided to go ahead and come back here so it's just going to be pretty interesting, and we certainly are asking not only a lot of teachers, we're asking a lot of parents to um, to do a lot and to you know make this thing work. And it is um, not something that I see at this point as as being stabilized. I really think we're we're moving into it now. To, you know, other schools are going back, quote unquote, as far as you know, with their remote, and um, that we're we're seeing how how this can work. We're fortunate to have. Wonderful resources at our school. I think I mentioned this before on the show with a, a HEPA 13 filter in every classroom with, um, you know, class sizes. My, my biggest class is 12. Uh, we have not had to do the, the situation where kids only get to come to school a couple days a week and then they have to rotate. And a lot of schools are in that boat. Uh, my sister's uh, children up in the Kansas City Liberty area are in that kind of a boat. And, um you know, Edmond, where we go to church north of us is, is in that situation. So yeah, just, just a whole lot of variety. Have, have, do you, do you see some generalizations and what, what have you heard from your, your Montana uh, folks in terms of the situation? And I, I'm guessing maybe you're a little similar as far as mask mandate and the way that that political situation, which shouldn't be political, but it is, has played out for schools? Yeah, the governor has ordered masks in K-12 schools, and oh, um, so we have, have that, to. but that does not mean that it's not political, and there have been some relatively serious, uh, I guess, contentious fights here in re uh, in regards to this uh, that, that uh, I mean, again, fortunately, I don't need to be part of those discussions because of, of my role in a distance learning program, but um, yeah, it's definitely happening here. I do not know any school that is starting remote only in the state of Montana. In fact, I'm pretty sure no school. I would say that the the there's probably three categories of schools. There's ones that started regular face-to-face, -face, but with social distancing and other requirements like masks in place. Then there are some districts that are... Um, uh, and, and by which I should start off that first category is no change in schedule, regular school, otherwise, right. Other than the social distancing and that in place. And there are plenty of small towns in Montana that haven't seen a single case of COVID and are unlikely to see a case of COVID unless it dramatically expands. Although I will note that COVID cases in Montana are trending up. Uh, the second category is schools that are doing some kind of alternative scheduling, um, and then allowing, um, uh, students to, um, uh, uh, also kind of, you know, zoom into a classroom, right? Um, and then the third category is folks that are doing alternative scheduling, but also have stood up their own online program that is, is more in the style of my program, right? Asynchronous distance learning, um, with, with some live video interactive pieces to the courses and some of the larger districts and a handful of medium sized school districts have done that as well. And the part that I can't, I, that, especially in the last seven days or so that I can't get around is I saw, I think it was a tweet. It may have been an article about how, you know, I can't wait for this to get back to normal. And what 
I, 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 Wes, I think you ask a good question, like what normal means, but I'm not sure if we fully understand yet that it is fairly likely that COVID in regards to public education, um, all education models, really, like it, I, w- I want to start K through actually preschool through higher ed, right? This is going to have such a ripple effect in education that we're not going to see the end of this for some time. I'm fairly certain that our careers, Wes and I's careers, will, will see some impact from COVID until we're done in, in education. I would add secondarily that um, there's going to be such incredible challenges to try. Like, it's not like we can, let's say we come up with a vaccine on, on, on uh, February 1st, 2021, and we're able to get a serious number of people vaccinated and that a lot of people take advantage of the vaccine. All those questions are huge question marks, but for the sake of discussion, let's say all those are true. I do not think that fall 2021 will be able to start as a normal school year for a couple of reasons. First, the incredible differences in, in student circumstances that COVID is exposing. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, there was a lot of indication of that this past spring, but we're not going to really see the rubber hit the road on that situation until we have a relatively normal school year that we can evaluate which students made no progress during that time, which students lost progress during that time. Um, you know, lots of states limit uh, how old you can be and still access public schooling services. In Montana, 19-year-olds, we don't pay for 19-year-olds, uh, pay schools to serve 19-year-olds. We don't have a very aggressively funded adult education system in the state of Montana, which means that there could be students, not just students next year and the year after, but students that are currently fifth graders or seventh graders or ninth graders that are going to get behind. And because of the somewhat rigorous structures we've had in place for literally uh, uh, decades going on centuries, that we may not be able to deal with those extraordinary differences in a way that can get kids back on pace to getting where they're going, right? No matter where that going is. And, and I, and I worry that, 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 that we're not going to see this for a long time. And so my guess is, is that, uh, unless you are in your very first year of teaching, uh, every teacher, every administrator, every IT director is going to see impacts of this for the rest of your career because it is, is going to lead to uh, some extraordinary circumstances just to clean up the mess after the mess is no longer an active hot mess, right? So um, I don't know what that means. Um, I know that I was a little annoyed early on um, uh, when this was just a crisis situation in the spring that, you know, reformers, uh, right, so-called reformers, uh, 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 either self-described or people that are actually in education reform, you know, said this is an opportunity. And I also have said, too, that we should you know, never waste a good crisis, right? We should also be looking for ways to rebuild things better after uh, this is all over with. But I do think that we have a lot of structures that are just not going to be flexible enough to deal with students' actual needs once this is 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 said and done, and it's no longer an active health threat. So any thought about that, Dr. Fryer? Well, let me assure folks, we are going to, we're going to get to some other articles too, but uh, <laughs> yeah. one, one, one related thought is, you know, I, I, I consider myself someone who's had a, a fair bit of experience, you know, teaching at a distance, supporting teachers, uh, teaching at a distance, 
<laughs> today, um, you know, and I am teaching fifth grade Spanish for the first time, but actually this wasn't a Spanish class. This was one of my uh, media literacy and digital literacy classes. I had um, assigned students basically one of the assignments that I had given in the spring for, um, for, for fifth grade. And um, what I was able to realize just working with my kids and having them work through this is it was a terrible assignment. Like my expectations were really, really off base. Uh, now, I also had a wonderful lesson today with my sixth grade, what, probably one of the better ones that I've done with lots of ahas and lots of great conversation. But one of the things that drives home to me is that no matter how much experience we have, we all need to be willing to, you know, recalibrate and 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 just, you know, try to try to figure stuff out, you know, kind of erase and, and, and not not start over, but, you know, be willing to reboot some lessons. And we just need to be in this for the long haul, communicating with each other, sharing about what's working, sharing about what's not working, um, you know, and, and just also what is developmentally appropriate, not only for the kids that we have and the ages that they are, but also where they are with their literacy and their abilities with their technology. Um, it is just you know, we are in the deep end of the pool together and we're having to swim and we're going to have to be in here for a long time. So basically we've all been chucked off of the ship and, and we're swimming around. And thankfully I don't think there's a lot of sharks around, but like literally it, it is like a survival situation where it's very taxing. And I will also say that the level of anxiety and the amount of work that teachers are doing is extraordinary. It was in the spring when we were doing emergency remote learning. And I think this is one of the most important roles administrators should always play, but certainly need to be playing today, is to try and have the pulse of where their teachers are in terms of wellness. And we need to be finding ways to really lighten the load. And to also, you've said it before, Jason, when you remind us, this is a global pandemic. You know, this is a big deal. And so sometimes things that we might be getting been out of shape on and sometimes we inflict these things on ourselves because we're perfectionists. Yeah. Um, we really need to be reminding each other about wellness and about boundaries. I've had multiple conversations with colleagues about that. And I think that, you know, some of that might come down from admin, but even when it doesn't, it's really important for us to encourage each other about wellness and for us to have those kinds of boundaries um, and to recognize that we're, we're, we're in this for a marathon. So it's just uh, amazing to me how much, I mean, we're of course a diverse world and we're a diverse nation. Um, but you know, it is, it is, we tend to think of public school and we think about something that is, you know, consistent. Yeah. I know what you're saying with that. And today yeah. there are just so many different situations that students are in. Uh, and it's incredibly challenging for teachers because we just have never asked teachers as an entire group to, to pivot and flex and to change in this kind of way, especially with respect to remote and distance learning and, um, you know, learning that involves, Frankly, it needs to involve a lot of design and a lot of of different kinds of instructional approaches than what we would just typically do face to face. So, Jason, I think you probably, you know, are in a good career field. I'm thinking, you know, you got a lot of expertise that's going to be needed for a long yeah. time. I think that's what we're saying here. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I would also note, too, is that um, I it is incredibly difficult to teach online if you approach it like you're going to be able to recreate face to face, I think you can create effective environments, but it's just really hard. I think to, um, I think to, to try to recreate 
whatever magic you were you were spinning uh, in the face-to-face classroom. So thank you for indulging me in that conversation. I've been kind of talking about that in the peripherals with, with my colleagues here in Montana. And it's nice to get a little external perspective. So, okay, let's jump into some tech news. Uh, is there a place you'd like to start tonight, sir? Sure. Let's go to some Apple articles. Uh, I've got a couple new ones and then a couple of their carryovers uh, from last week. Um, the first one from last week is actually an August 16th article. You may have put this one in, how Fortnite baited Apple into a losing battle. And this is uh, from uh, its medium and it's from a source called um, One Zero. And it says Epic Games ambush shows how antitrust scrutiny has changed in the App Store uh, landscape. And, and basically, I mean, this is an important current event for people to know uh, what has happened and what is happening. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share my perspectives on it, Jason, and then let's, let's hear your, your understanding. Um, Apple generally, with most app developers, requires a 30% cut. That's the deal of the App Store. There are certain in, you know, groups. I think that Amazon is one. Uh, I think that perhaps... Uh, Netflix is another that they have some special deals, but by and large, that's that's what you have to pay. And so what I understand is that uh, Epic Games, who makes Fortnite, which is incredibly popular, decided that they wanted to fight that. And so they knew this would be in violation of uh, Apple's rules, but they went ahead and had some ways that folks could be paying for some things, I guess, in app that were not going to go through uh, Apple's in-app purchase and, and their, you know, ability to take 30% off. So Apple ended up cutting off their uh, continued provision of the app, uh, their updates to the app. Um, what I understand was the, I mean, the judge had tried to get them to stop. And then I don't, I don't, I, I had heard this and I read that in the article that, that the judge had not wanted Apple to take the steps that it did. But anyway, we have a, a legal battle on our, on our hands now. And a lot of folks who are Fortnite fans, and we're playing on iOS, uh, and I think this is also Mac OS, right? Um, you know, are not pleased about it. And so what it points to are some issues with, mono- with you know, alleged monopolies. And, you know, does Apple have the right to do this? And they've built this platform, but they wield, you know, such power. And so uh, Epic is picking this fight. And it, I would not think that they would win, but goodness gracious, who knows what's going to happen in, in today's political environment. So how do you read this, Dr. Neifer, in terms of the issues and what's going on and even what's happened since that article? That's a, That article is now about two weeks old. Yeah, well, I mean, I think since then um... – uh, Apple has deleted uh, Epic Games' uh, developer account, which is uh, a, an unbelievably aggressive step here. But, I mean, I I know it's it's hard to know who to uh, um, uh, who to cheer for here. And, and I'll admit it's, it's a little confusing for me, too, from the standpoint that, I mean, I, I do think that Apple sets up an elegant experience for users to where they have a hardware platform and an, an app delivery platform that meets a certain kind of user that is desirable to developers, right? And so I'm it's worth something. I don't know if it's 30% or not, but it's worth something. And at the same time, um, you know, Fortnite is, or the Epic Games' platform is saying that that's too much and that, um, you know, we don't need you, basically, right? Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of little pieces of evidence that, that, that 
uh, well, both sides uh, could could end up winning here. I think the fact that Apple just went ahead and deleted it is, I mean, that's a very aggressive stance, but that's one to suggest that they feel like that they're going to win this, that there's no real implication for them to do that. At the same time, in the last two weeks, devices, iOS devices that have Fortnite installed on them have gone for hundreds of dollars above their retail price. And in one case, an iPad mini went for $5,000 on eBay last week. And, you know, I, 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 I've played Fortnite just once. I like the game. I try to stay away from addictive substances. So I, I did not get to totally into that, right? Otherwise, I probably would be playing it right now instead of engaging in, you know, adult conversation with, with a valued colleague and friend. But the, 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 the point being that, you know, there's something to that game, obviously. And so I think Epic also has a pretty good point too that, you know, they're going to have to find a way to do this a, a little differently. Um, I know that Amazon has had re- Real uh, uh, battles with the good folks at um, uh, the good folks at at Apple on this. Um, their Kindle device, you can't buy anything on the Kindle device. You, it's just a, a, a reader for them where you log in and download books. But also because Apple is not you know totally off base, you can you can have like the Target app, Walmart app, Amazon app. Don't charge those fees because they they know they're not going to get 30% of everything you buy on the Home Depot app on iOS. So I don't know really who to cheer for here. They both have, I think, important points that are worthwhile. But I guess I would also spin it in another direction to say that um, I do think that apps would probably well, frankly, go down in price a little bit, and there will be more flexible options for schools for purchasing app with, with managed iOS devices um, if they were able to to hold back a little bit uh, on taking such a high percentage of developer fees. And, you know, um, uh, one thing you may not know is that almost every platform, if you've never sold anything on a platform before, every platform takes a cut, right? There's no such thing as a free platform unless you're rolling your own. And you, that, that doesn't exist anymore anywhere on the Apple universe. It does a little bit on the Android universe, but not really. There's still just primarily the Play Store and a couple alternatives. So yeah, super interesting article. And, you know, um, uh, Apple is the Tiffany of devices, right? They have a clientele that they serve. They are uh, uh, very well desired um, in almost every market because they tend to cater to a certain clientele and uh, maybe they win this, maybe they don't. So in addition to on the Apple front, uh, this was another interesting fight, but this is one where Apple actually backed down, and I definitely think this was the, the right decision for them because they were on the wrong side of, of the argument. Uh, this is a ver- – oh, and I, I guess I need to keep – I've been in the habit, by the way, of putting our – articles as we talk about them into our chat that's actually made it nice uh, because you can scroll through and actually can go to the end like of YouTube and all of the links that we've been doing that we nice. actually talked about are, are in there. Um, so I'll, I'll drop this one in, but this is a verge article from um, August 23rd. Apple apologizes to WordPress won't force the free app to add purchases after all. And I had actually seen Jason um, tweet an earlier version of this when yes. it appeared to be a standoff so <clears throat> to, if you're not familiar, WordPress is one of the world's you know, most popular uh, content engines for websites. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but a sizable number of the world's websites um, you know, are powered by WordPress. WordPress 
was it, it, they had and have an app, but kind of similar to this, Apple was upset thinking that they were circumventing their processes in, in letting people make a purchase that didn't give Apple a cut. And so that it looked like they were going to, to get pulled. And I think maybe they even did for a little bit, but what they ended up doing, WordPress had done everything I think they could do. Uh, they had removed those features because what they, what people were able to do anyway, it, it, it's not something that, that could be done in the app. And so Apple apologized, which is kind of rare in these kind of situations. And, um, you know, they've made up and, and WordPress is, is back on the store. So, you know, it's just important issues in terms of, and this ties to the tech correction, which we talked about before. How are we as a society? Will we, as a as a United States society, regulate the tech platforms? Will we? Uh, are we going to? I mean, there there are regulations and laws that obviously affect um, the the ways the platforms operate and the ways that liability operates and things like that. Um, but these these are both related issues because they have to do with Apple being upset at whether or not people can purchase things, you know, inside these apps. And in one case, it's they've really gone to the wall and, and they're there to fight and litigate. And somebody's now just, you know, had their account d- disabled and deleted, I guess, or whatever, the, the disabled off of uh, Apple's developer site. And, and then on the other side, we've got a, uh, another group making up. So, um, how does this, how does this tie to education, Jason? Bring us back to the, the ed tech situation room with all this. Well, if you are, if you take advantage of the free app, uh, universe, right? Which is pretty prolific. Lots of free apps out there of varying quality, but many of them are very good. You do not want Apple bullying free app providers into finding some way to profit off of them. Now, it, it seems clear that's not what they were doing here. Um, that it was truly a mistake, but you do not want that to happen. And if it gets to a point where every app is suddenly a for purchase app, it dramatically decreases the usefulness of mobile devices uh, in, in K-12 education. Period. Absolutely. Absolutely. One more quick Apple and we'll wrap up. I think that that series that we've got uh, this one was uh, from yesterday in Ars Technica. iOS 13.7 launched today with a new system for battling the pandemic. And we've talked about contact contact tracing and the ways in which uh, certain countries, not the United States, are being quite assertive or aggressive in terms of their utilization of apps that are assisting, um, you know, public uh, public employees, uh, law enforcement, health officials, whoever it is that are involved in doing contact tracing and trying to protect society. <clears throat> so Apple um, had previously in April, both Apple and Google had announced a joint plan where they were developing this system that was going to use Bluetooth to allow in contact tracing. And so they, this is the second phase of this rollout. They rolled some stuff out in May, which was an API that let um, you know, app developers take advantage of that and have some custom apps. And I know that there's some some schools doing that. I've read some stories about colleges that have resident uh, advisors, RAs, who are using their apps and and reporting on on students and on behavior and things like that. And as that relates to COVID, you know, those features um, are 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 uh, more robust because you can actually have detection of what devices you've been in contact with. And that's going to assist officials and, and um, people, you know, in being able to do contact tracing. So what this allows is not just in special apps, but I guess uh, this allows for 
Um, I think that states have to buy into it. So it says so far, Maryland, Nevada, Virginia, yeah. the District of Columbia are participating, but it's called an ex- exposure notifications express system. And there are more states that are taking a look at this. 20 countries have launched exposure tracking apps. Uh, and so it doesn't impact existing solutions, Apple and Google say. So I'll, I'll note that it's great to see Apple and Google collaborating in this way. As we've talked about on the show before, there's, you know, privacy implications to this. But I think the public health importance of this is is huge. And of course, we, we want all of our data to be secure and these kind of things not to be hacked. But I would see this as a positive. It's interesting that in the United States, we're taking that on a state by state basis. But that is kind of the way we roll in our uh, at, in some cases with some things in our, you know, Federalist uh, Tenth Amendment uh, powers not specifically given to the nation are reserved for the states, I guess. So are you guys talking about that in Montana, Jason, in terms of any kind of statewide contact tracing or do you see this affecting affecting you guys? Um, I, I have not seen any any discussion related to technological means of doing that and, and adopting a statewide system. And Montana is kind of the state of local patrol. It's a, a popular term here. And so a, as an example of this, uh, where there is a, a, a extensive debate in the state of Montana right now about allowing spectators at sporting events. Um, most sporting events are happening. Uh, there have been no seasons canceled, at least at, at the high school ranks in the state of Montana. Now the debate is whether uh, there should be spectators to these sports and then secondarily how closely together they can sit, should there be. So, um, and that's been left to local county health officials because there's such a disparity between large and small counties, the percentage of, of, of COVID cases. And so nothing here yet, but certainly interesting. And, you know, tech, tech surveillance can be used for good, right? Obviously you want massive privacy protections put into place. Although I do think, uh, based on both, um, uh, earlier articles and more recent ones as you're starting to roll out the tech, Apple and Google's approach to this are both pretty, pretty privacy minded, right? Because this is, I don't think you need to straight up violate uh, people's privacy to be able to do the kind of contact and, and, and tracing that you're talking about. Sounds good. All right. Well, probably enough Apple news for your Google blood, sir. Would you like to <laughs> dive into some uh, some Google stuff or you want to go somewhere else next? Uh, yeah, let's do a couple of Google things here. Uh, a couple of articles I held over from last week because they're super interesting. The first one was from The Verge on August 18th. Um, Samsung is doing something that might actually bring me back to a Samsung phone. And I have to say, I have not been a Samsung customer since uh, my first uh, uh, Android phone, which was the the Galaxy Note 2, um, I've, I I have owned a Galaxy Note 4, a used one that I picked up for for mostly just for project purposes because I was looking to make a, a kind of a, a project uh, machine out of it a, a year or two back. But otherwise, um, I have been utilizing as of late mostly Motorola and Google phones is my Android preference. But one of the frustrating things I I have about Samsung phones is that the updates on them are terrible. And where iOS absolutely dominates Android is in the fact that 
that even older devices receive new versions of iOS on the day it is released, where that is not true at all in the Android universe. And you're guaranteed, well, you're supposed to be guaranteed two, which is one of the conditions Google makes in using the software, but sometimes it doesn't happen at all. And if it does, it's just one update. And I find that to be incredibly frustrating because Google's Android operating system does evolve pretty fast and the new versions have great new features, right? Same is true on the iOS side. Well, Samsung is now uh, uh, working to guarantee that you will get three major Android updates. And even though they've been a little quicker on the rollout of Android updates in the past couple of years are still slower than some of the other Android manufacturers, but that's a very tempting thing to me here, um, that there is a, a, uh, especially in their premium and, and, and mid-range devices, they will give you three Android updates. And so um, I'm pretty satisfied with my phone structure right now. Frankly, I don't really need a cell phone uh, to do my job during the day. I'm going to be stuck at home here for, you know, uh, uh, long time, right? Wow. So I'm not going anywhere. So I don't really need a good mobile phone. In fact, I could probably get away um, other than uh, phone calls and texts from family. I could probably get away with just having a tablet around the house. Um, and, and I have uh, a, a couple choices as I'm Wes is probably uh, not surprised to find out uh, to be able to utilize a tablet in my house. But that's a really great piece of news that they're going to head in that direction. And then one other piece of, of interesting news that uh, I guess I, I, I would like to hear a um, another uh, geek's um, attitude about. I have been obsessed for a very long time with e-ink devices, right? And part of it is I do like reading on my Kindle. It's not my favorite research platform if I'm just paging through something, or I've also figured out that I, I hate travel books on Kindle. It doesn't allow me to move around deftly enough to feel like I'm getting or using the books the way I want to. But for long-form fiction and nonfiction, if I'm reading a book cover to cover, it's pretty hard to beat the Kindle. And um, a long time ago, when the Nook was first released, this was seven, eight, nine years ago, you could uh, hack the Nook because it was Android, right? And it, 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 was, it didn't look like Android because it was they built something on top of it. But you could hack the Nook. Um, very strange phrase I just uttered. You could hack the Nook to put Android on it and use it as an Android tablet. And I, I bought a used uh, a Nook. I hacked Android on it, and as it turns out, I loved it. It was super great because when I was reading the New York Times, when I was reading uh, newspaper articles, when I was reading long web pages, I loved to be able to use that non-backlit e-ink screen. Well, as it turns out, there are two kinds of devices that are starting to become a little more prolific. One of them is the e-ink Android tablet. They've been around uh, since Android started, but there are new form factors. Uh, the one that I'm currently extremely interested in is a 12-inch e-ink tablet, so iPad Pro-sized e-ink tablet that runs Android 9. And you can actually buy an e-ink external monitor that plugs in via USB or USB-C. And I have to say, um, you know, obviously you're not going to watch YouTube on this. And I've looked at, at e-ink phones. I've been very tempted by it. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just a nerd. Um, but 
I think this is interesting. And so I happen to find um, a, 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 a someone that understands my soul. His name is Alex Kranz at Gizmodo. And he's talking about one of these these uh, uh, ink tablets and says that he is absolutely in love with the Ankh's books Nova 2. So, Wes, i got to ask, you're a gadget guy. I've seen you with an awful lot of interesting tech in your hands. E-ink tablet. Yes, and but, you know... The reason I am drawn to them, and I think Bob Sprankle, uh, rest his soul, might have been the one to mention this and talk to me about it. Uh, it has to do with multitasking. Now, yes. <laughs> I do find myself almost unable to read these days nonfiction and stuff that I, anyway, it's just fiction is, is different, but nonfiction. Uh, sometimes without having a quote and sharing something. That's part of the way that I process things, but... You know, when you're reading on an iPad or a phone or or any, let's just say smartphone or tablet, uh, which is multifunction, you know, it's challenging. And I think having just that single use device can really help you perhaps, you know, not be tempted by by your Twitter or your other social media, uh, you know, and and obviously we. We all have the ability to be disciplined and to not, you know, switch the apps and things like that. But I am, I, I came really, I would, I would have loved this summer actually to, to pick up a Kindle Paperwhite. Um, the fact that they're waterproof, um, they, the battery lasts so long. Uh, we do have a Kindle that, that our youngest daughter, you know, is kind of appropriated and she's, she's used it. And, and I've, I've switched around and used it some, but I, we, I haven't used a backlit one yet. So, I mean, that technology is, really appealing for the for the battery life and and the fact that you can be so focused and um <laughs> you know back in the day uh what were those called we had alpha smart keyboards in my fourth grade classroom this is harkening back to like 90 95 96 um these were like they had four lines but i think that was probably similar kinds of e-ink technology because it wasn't any kind of lcd stuff um you know, but it was, you know, super long battery life running on a few, you know, double A AA or triple A batteries or something like that. Um, I, I think there's a huge, uh, need that we have for, for being able to, you know, have devices that have super long battery life and, and do individual things really, really well. But, um, is the Nook even around anymore? I think that's going to be our show title, by the way. Hack, <laughs> hack the Nook. So, hack the Nook. Course, folks, yeah. Hashtag hash the Nook. I, I do believe that it is. Um, and there is a very extensive kind of B tier architecture around, um, uh, related to, um, uh, related to e-ink devices, right? But I have to say, I, there, there is a, there's a, uh, a Hisense, I think it's Hisense, maybe it's Huawei, but there's a, there's a Chinese, uh, e-ink phone that runs, uh, the, the, the key piece here is making sure it's got the Play Store on it. There's a lot of Android devices, uh, uh, Android e-ink phone devices that you can, can buy, but they don't have a Google Play Store on them, which means they're functionally worthless, right? You can't get the apps that you really need, but I would absolutely be in the market for an under $500 e-ink phone. And the, the battery life on them is amazing. Uh, six, seven days of battery life on there because the screen sucks up a ton of color screen, high resolution color screen sucks up a ton of battery. Yes, I couldn't watch YouTube on it. Yes, I couldn't watch Netflix on it. But the bottom line, Wes, was your original point that I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to multitask. And maybe I want a better device when I want to watch YouTube or when I want to watch Netflix. And um, if I could get my email and text messaging plus reading apps and be able to check the news, 
that's a pretty compelling device for me, assuming the phone part works. Well, I'll say this about tablets. So we're, it's, it's interesting. We hopefully next week, I don't know if they've arrived yet, but we have a lot of iPads that are arriving at school and our sixth graders are going to be using their iPad, an iPad as their device for this first semester. And then they're going to switch with seventh grade, uh, for Chromebook. Um, fifth graders I'm teaching right now all have Chromebooks. Um, last night I commented to my wife because, you know, I will not, I don't want to read in bed with my laptop. I just don't. A tablet is an absolutely fantastic form factor. And I honestly do like being able to do things besides simply read, you know, being able to sometimes watch media, but, you know, capture screenshots and share things on social media, being able to access social media. So I think that, you know, tablets are not going to go away. And I don't think that we're going to see this complete, you know, merger of, of the two platforms. I, I'm honestly very happy having three devices, having a smartphone, having a tablet and having a laptop. But when we think about schools, I mean, we're not going to want probably to either provide for students or ask parents to provide, you know, multiple devices. And so um, anyway, the educational implications of all this, I, I see this being more on a consumer side and things that people are going to do with a tablet. I know that Apple really had a push at one point and they probably still are. Maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm wearing my Apple shirt today, so maybe it looks like I should know more than I do. I don't. Um, at one point they were were really pushing the iPad as the the platform of the future but um yeah i mean we could we we talked on the show a few weeks ago about how the changes in the processors you know coming now it's a few years before full transition are going to mean touch devices probably on the laptop and iOS devices running etc but i don't know i i see the tablet world being more of an extra that you're going to have probably not going to be your main daily driver to do everything that you need to do. But it'll be interesting. Ask me, you know, in December or January after I've spent a few months with with kids using a seventh generation, not an iPad Pro, but a but a latest generation under the pro level iPad with keyboard, with you know Apple Pencil compatible, Logitech stylus, yada yada. So but hey, I'm I'm all for it. Go go e ink. I think you should get it, Jason. Add it to your arsenal <laughs> of devices. Tell your wife that your your ed tech situation room compadre has authorized the purchase. Well, there we go. But yeah, it's I'm not sure that'll go. Purchase. I'm sure that'll go really well. Yeah, so that'll give you a lot of a lot of additional uh, uh, authorization to move forward. Well, hey, um, next week. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna, there's a great article and a discussion I would love to have with you about Firefox, but I think we'll just tease that for next week. Uh, Google bailed out Firefox a couple weeks ago, and I think that there's a discussion I'd love to have with you about whether we need two browsers anymore. And, and I'll be honest, I'm, I keep going back and forth on whether or not this is true, but let's push that one to next week. Is there anything else? We should absolutely hit this week. Yeah, let, let's pick up a couple more quick. Uh, these are some odd ones, but uh, good ones. This is from Ars Technica yesterday. The U.S. military took a big step toward a future space network this week. Um, we have talked on the show with a, a, a sizable amount of uh, anticipation and excitement about Starlink, which is SpaceX's and, and Elon Musk's push to have this low-latency satellite network that is uh, going to... Well, it is now. It's in beta, but it promises to be able to provide global, very, very fast, you know, internet connectivity. Um, so there's two articles I have kind of related to this. This one reminds me of Starlink, but this is saying that the U.S. military has just uh, issued some contracts for 
a, a big paradigm change in the way that they use communication satellites, speaking as if we have access to the classified information, because we're sure there's all kinds of things that, you know, they're doing that we have no idea about. But uh, rather than using these really large multifunction uh, telecommunication satellites, they're going to be deploying three to 500 in this layer, which will be redundant for GPS in case the GPS network gets taken down. But it's also going to have tracking capabilities for ground-based targets, as well as missiles and space-based targets. It's really a big deal. And it just makes me wonder, oh my gosh, the folks who are tracking all this stuff. I know Falcon Air Base outside of Colorado Springs used to be, and perhaps still is, the, the air base. Now, part of Space Command, I would guess, where they literally were tracking not only every satellite, but every piece of space debris, uh, which there is a considerable amount going around our planet. So I thought this was pretty interesting. And in light of, you know, other conversations that people are having about connectivity and, and things like that, um, pretty interesting to think about, you know, this kind of uh, of, of a military network and uh, the capacity and capability that that's going to give. Um, something else related to this that has to do with Starlink, <clears throat> also from Ars Technica, and this was from today, SpaceX seeks FCC broadband funds must prove it can deliver sub 100 megabit per second latency. A couple of things from this article. Number one, what the FCC in the United States is defining as high speed here, oh, and I guess I just sent that only to, let me fix my link. Um, only um, they're defining it as 25 megs down and uh, three megs up. That's what they're saying is high speed. Um, SpaceX in their betas of Starlink can definitely exceed that. But the, the key here is latency. In order to do live video conferencing or, you know, something like what we're doing here, you have to have very low latency. Uh, gaming has to, you know, require low latency. And so they're confident that they can get that. There's like $16 billion that they're handing out, I think, over a 10-year period of time, usually to ISPs that are going to be helping rural customers, think Montana, Oklahoma, maybe people that you know, um, help those folks have an option or or maybe more than one option, but at least one option for high-speed wired connectivity. And so it looks like, you know, SpaceX, I, I think we'd had an article a while back that made it sound like they were going to be out of the running, but this makes it sound like they're not. And obviously, if they can get that kind of funding, uh, you know, that that would that would be beneficial for them. So I think yeah. that sounds exciting. I did look into, you know, we're, we have we've had some trouble with our Internet and in the last uh, few weeks. And uh, I mean, we we don't have I mean, we ha we could go with AT&T, but where we can get a gigabyte down. Uh, I think AT&T can give us a maximum of like 25 or maybe 50 megs or something. But I mean, it's it's so not in the realm of of competitive um, that it'll it'll be very interesting when this rolls out, because I don't think it'll just be, you know, customers in in uh, rural rural spots. Obviously, those folks will be interested, too. But there could even be folks that are in cities or folks that are in towns that, you know, don't have other kinds of competition, depending upon how that gets priced. So. Yeah, and to be clear, I for for both family and also the rural populations of my state, and then also per, personally, uh, that uh, my my in laws have a cabin that is nowhere near internet access. And although I'm sure they don't want internet access, I'd be happy to put whatever device they want on top of their cabin to be able to get internet, so I could spend you know summer times there uh, working as opposed to being at my home. So I am cheering this effort and all that's involved. Awesome. 
Okay, well, sir, I think it's time to geek of the week it. So why don't you go first? Well, I was almost going to say, look at Jason. He's he's doing several, and I'm doing one, but I'll do two. <laughs> uh, so this looks fantastic. New documentary out on Netflix coming this month. Uh, it is called The Social Dilemma. And I learned about it from Tristan Harris, who is a co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. They have the Undivided, Your Undivided Attention podcast, which is just absolutely fantastic. And so on September 9th on Netflix alone, uh, they are coming out with this documentary, uh, which their byline is Silicon Valley Insiders reveal how social media is reprogramming civilization. So when you think about the tech correction, you think about the impact, which these very addictive designed for addiction, social media platforms are not only having on us as individuals, but also on us societally and within our culture. I think we're going to, you know, be having a very strong and well-informed critique provided through this documentary and the trailer is out and I am definitely going to be checking that out. And then the second thing is just a, a great article. Um, I'd had this under media literacy, and I'm just going to put it as a geek of the week. Best article I've ever read about memes. This is from MIT Technology Review in October of 2019. It's by Joan Donovan, who is somebody I follow in my media literacy uh, Twitter list. But man, I did not I did not know about some of these memes that were used in the 2016 election to portray that Hillary Clinton was not only going to uh, get the draft going again, but was going to be drafting women. And these are really powerful. And I had not heard the idea that a meme really obtains power when it has anonymity in the culture, when you can't tell who it came from, what the original source was, it kind of just takes on a life of its own. And so this is a really excellent article. And I'm going to go so far as to say, I don't think any of us can adequately understand our communication landscape and specifically the electoral influences that are happening with people today if we would ignore memes. I think memes are a huge, important uh, communication phenomenon, medium, um, and, and this is an outstanding article, best article I've ever seen or read about memes, so highly commend that. Jason, you have three for us tonight. What do you got? I do. It's it's the West strategy of the week. Two of them are alike. Um, so... I, if you are new to designing uh, online learning, distance learning, remote teaching, uh, you probably have not thought about accessibility yet, even though it's been pretty prominent in social media circles. But accessibility is the notion that content is able to be consumed by everyone, whether you have a, a disability or not. And so it's things like helping those that can't see certain colors or people that use screen readers or the many varieties of ways people access content. If this is not your thing yet, or it's not on your radar, uh, you should educate yourself. And I did share the W3... W3C standard introduction to web accessibility, which does absolutely apply uh, to to designing distance learning. But the article I really wanted to share uh, was a great article from UX Design on August 14th. It's a guide on what makes a typeface accessible. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because so many typefaces people use out of a notion of being interesting or creative are actually really hard to read for a lot of people, right? And that may include and probably does include 
food, at least some of your students. And I have been guilty at, at times in my education career of being a little overly fonty, I guess would be the way I describe it. I, I actually know quite a lot about, man, I'm a nerd, a historical typefaces. I, I know a lot about the history of a lot of typefaces because that's very interesting to me. And sometimes I mix typefaces together, uh, the based on historical, <laughs> overly fonty, um, a, a historical, um, uh, 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 well, it's historically appropriate fonts, uh, when I used to teach history of design <coughs> slides uh, for my classroom. I'm so excited. I'm choking on my own spit. But the point is, is that this article goes into, if you are a little on the font creative side, that you could be actually diminishing the opportunity for all of your consumers of your content to really take in all of your content. And then for those who'd like to obsess about data, I'm 99.9% sure I probably shared a similar link uh, in, in, in the early days of our podcast in 2016. But 538, hands down, the best site that categorizes uh, a political data, right? It's, it's a site that's not just political data. They also analyze a bunch of sports data as well, if that is your uh, uh, data uh, desires in the world. But they have a really great 2020 election forecast page. Uh, it does evolve every day with new polling data. And Nate Silver, who is the proprietor of 538, he's been around for at least since 2008, I think, uh, is when he first came on the scene analyzing elections data. But if you like to obsess about what's going on and want to start breaking down swing states and state-by-state polling, um, the 2020 election forecast at 538.com is pretty outstanding. Outstanding. Well... It's, uh, hey, you know what? We did good. We started a little late, though, and we're at, uh, just coming up to 60 minutes, so you did well, sir. Perfect. So, Wes, where pe- can people find you on the Internet? I am on Twitter at WFryer. I'm blogging very rarely, but still every once in a while, at speedofcreativity.org, and I am sharing some Spanish vocabulary, which I'm sure everyone is going to want to immediately uh, go check out. But uh, some of my other lessons for media and digital literacy on mdtech.cassidy.org. And how about you, Dr. Knifer? I am a tech savvy teacher on Twitter, and I work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education uh, in professional development blog.ncc.org. But this thing here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights. We are live at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night if you happen to be in Western Europe, but we love to have a live audience. So check out our Twitter handle, EdTechSR, or you can go to our Facebook page, just search for EdTech Situation Room, and you can get a notification that we are live. So please come join our chat room anytime you like. If you can't join us live, you can always download us where finer podcasts are aggregated. You can also find tiny little audio copies of our podcast along with every link we talk about each week at our website edtechsr.com until next time have a great week we hope you are safe and savvy and we'll see you next time on the edtech situation room good night